The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Bibles now and open them to Leviticus chapter 5. And this evening as we resume our study of the trespass offering, we're talking about the last of the five Old Testament sacrifices. This is the final one in uh, the sacrifice part of the series, but we're not ending here. We've got other things to talk about. Uh, next week we start the priest of the sacrifices. But this is the trespass offering, the last of the five. It is a non-sweet savor offering, which tells us that it's an offering that is made for the atonement of sins. It's an offering that differs from the sin offering, that it's also non-sweet savor. Both of them sound alike, like they're the same things, but they differ in how they deal with sin. The trespass offering is for transgressions, while the sin offering is for the sin nature. And the differences between those two are very subtle in this text. They're not very easily recognizable. And the way we do see it here is that they are differentiated in that the uh, sin offering has no specific sins that are mentioned with it, while the trespass offering does uh, speak of different sins. Transgressions for the trespass offering are divided into two categories. I'm just kind of summarizing to catch us up with where we want to go this evening. But if you remember, first we talked about guilt uh, from sins against holiness. These would be characterized as sins of improper worship. They are failures to give due reverence to God. And if we match these up with the Ten Commandments, these would be uh, against the first four commandments, the first table of the law. Israel's worship system was very complicated. There were many detailed rules to follow. There were sanctification procedures for people. There was meticulous inspection of animals. There was proper protocol for the order of the sacrifices, how they handled the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, both inside and outside of the tabernacle. And there were rules for how animals were cut and divided, which parts could be eaten, which parts are to be completely consumed in the fire. And then where is this fire to be burned? Is it inside or outside of the camp? There are more details that concern consecration of priests and the vessels of the sanctuary. There was incense and bread and feast days and tithes, and it just goes on and on and on. God is a stickler for worship because he is holy. And this helps us to recognize the difference between us and God, that there is a gap between us that is impassable and it's detailed and God shows us here through all these details of sacrifices how he wants to be worshipped. And this is just not a haphazard thing. Now we saw this in the example of Moses' intercession for two Israelite men who were unintentionally defiled and not able to go through the sanctification procedures before the Passover. And none of these people would presume upon God to do that without asking God's permission. And likewise, we need to remember still that God is particular about worship. And we often fail to give God the reverence that we should when we come into his house and when we worship him. And many times in our churches, the effort is to please self rather than God in worship. So if we fail, what do we do about the failures? If we fail God in that first table of the law, we don't worship him properly, what do we do? 
Well, thankfully, there's an antitype for these sacrifices that covers us for all transgressions, even the ones that we don't realize that we have transgressed. Now, bridging the first and second categories is a general category of sin. We, I, I added this one in because the text indicates it, but it's not the two categories specifically that the passage talks about. But we also see in uh, Leviticus 5.17 that there are guilt from sins against commandments, that we are to do everything that God commands. In the 17th verse it says, And if a soul sin and commit any of these things, which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he wist it not, yet is he guilty and shall bear his iniquity. This same thing was stated uh, when the law was repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's known to us as the Shema. And in Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2, it says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Now in the second part of Leviticus 5.17, the scripture says that a person is responsible and he is guilty when he sins, even if he doesn't know that he has sinned. Though he wished it not, is what that scripture says. Though he does not know it, yet he is guilty. He shall bear his iniquity. He is responsible. And so with so many rules that they had to follow, so many things that the Israelite must, they must have missed out on some of these things. And there are millions of people, there are thousands of sacrifices, and they had to have offended God even in ways that they weren't aware. And so thus, there are two types of sins that are comprehended. There are the sins of commission. These are the ones that are direct violations of God's law. We can't miss those. They're stated very clearly in Scripture. Then there are also sins of omission, things that we should do but we don't do. Some of those can also be because of ignorance. The clearest description of sins of omission is in James 4.17, which says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now, I, I was thinking about that passage, and another one came to my mind. What is a sin of omission that we are commonly, that we commonly commit, that we just leave it out when we should be doing something better? I thought about Galatians 6.2, which says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of Christ. You know what Paul means there? He means the second table of the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in our interpersonal relationships, this, I think, is the chief failure. It's a major omission not to help one another, not to love one another as we should. And remember that remembering to do this will eliminate much of the strife that's between us. Paul wrote this scripture to the churches at Galatia. Churches are made up of believers that are in a covenant relationship with each other and with God. And in this communion of fellowship of God's people, there should be love, there should be that fellowship, there should be the care and for brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are, as the Scripture says, to bear one another's burdens. Some weeks ago, I, I was discussing with Mona a, a prayer request that she had made. She replied to a, 
to an email thanking me and thanking the church that we would help to bear her burden in prayer. And that was a poignant example that spoke to me as I was preparing this message that our duty is to pray for each other. And then not just to pray for each other, but to put feet on those prayers. We, we pray and we also help wherever we're needed as much as we can. Now, this brings us then to the final category that I want to talk to you about tonight, final category of transgressions. The first is sins against God in the first table of the law. The second is sins in the second table of the law. And these are guilt from sins against people. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, there are representative sins against people. Now, first we notice in verse number 2 that a sin against people is also a sin against the Lord. And we know that all sins are against Him, but there's a difference in sinning directly against the Lord in worship than sinning indirectly through people. Verse number 2 speaks of both of these, against the Lord and the people. It says, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor. And then in, in this verse and those following, we find here we find lying, we find stealing that is accompanied with violence, there's general deception, there is swearing falsely. Twice in the passage, the ninth commandment is mentioned. And in our study of the commandments, you may remember that in the context of the Ten Commandments, that talks about lying in a court of law. But then we learn that it extends outward to all forms of lying that we're not to do. And so I think this passage mentions that twice so that we're sure to catch that. Now, in this part of the trespass offering, it's emphasized. This is the main emphasis of it, that sin against your neighbor is a sin against God. How little do we consider that our treatment of others is the same as our treatment of God? We are made in the image of God. We're moral, rational, intelligent creatures made different from all other creatures, but unfortunately we fail God in all three of those areas. We fail Him morally, rationally, and intelligently. Now, there are many, many sins that we could deal with outside of the church, people that are lost. Obviously, people commit many, many sins. Our lives are lives of sinners. But the scriptures here are talking about the people of God. These are the ones in that covenant community. And so what we need to do is to spend our time talking about the sins of God's people, the mistreatment of others in the covenant community of the church. And we'll be much more careful about what we say and we do when we understand that what we say and do against others also affects how we treat God. Now let me be more specific about that. What we do to each other is done to Christ. He, of course, is the one who gave his life in suffering of the cross for all of those things that we're about to do. Either it was to pay for the wrong with his death or to pay with the good that we do for his service in his life. One way he satisfies, his death satisfies sin. The other, his life enables us to righteousness. So either way, what we do is always a reflection and is always done to the Savior. Uh, this, this principle in the New Testament reaches back into the Old Testament to find its, its foundation in the trespass offering. Now, I want to give us some examples of where this is found in the New Testament. So I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 9. 
This is a reference to Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And in the end of chapter 7, Saul, or Paul, had watched the stoning of Stephen. In chapter 8, in verse number 1, he looked approvingly upon his death. In the third verse of the 8th chapter, the King James says that he made havoc of the church. The ESV translates that he ravaged the church. And then in chapter 9, on his way to stir up more trouble after having received authority from the high priest, he's on the road to Damascus and the Lord appeared to him. Verse number 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, how did, how did Saul persecute Jesus? As far as we know, he'd never met Jesus. And yet Jesus said, you're persecuting me. How did he do it? Well, he did it because he did it to the Lord's people. Are we sufficiently impressed with this to understand that what we do to God's people are done to God. If you lose your temper and you go off on someone, that's as if you are angry with Jesus. When you gossip and you tear someone down with slander, it's as if you did it to Christ. And why is that true? Because the Bible teaches that God's people, Christians, are in Him, that we are a part of His flesh and bones. Ephesians 5.30, For we are members of His body and of His flesh and of His bones. And we just read this over and over in Scripture so many times that it says we are in Him. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Ephesians 1, 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. In Philippians 3, verse 9, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. In 1 John 2, 5, Whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know that we are in him. 1 John three twenty four, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. And then in 1 John five twenty, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, and even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We are in him. And so whenever you hurt someone, you've done it to Christ. And conversely, whenever you help someone, it's also done to Christ. And so when the scripture says, bear one another's burdens, when you bear that burden, you take on Christ's burden. Now, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 25, the Savior verified this principle with his own testimony. And we'll look at verse number 31 in Matthew 25. The scripture says that we're going to give an account of our treatment of others. Jesus gave one part of this passage as a warning to those who would persecute. And then the other is a commendation for those who would help others. 
In Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, this is talking about judgment. We're going to come in judgment for, into judgment for our treatment of others. He says in verse 33, And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now you read the rest of that. Uh, you can do that later and you'll see that failure to do what is right is a sin of omission. This particular part about, of it is about the blessed ones who helped their brothers. And when they did, they helped Christ. They blessed Christ in their deeds as they blessed others. Well, finally, we come to the part that I think is the most amazing part of this offering. We don't see anything like this in any of the other offerings. It's a marvelous truth, and it's another demarcation of the difference between this and the sin offering. There is another beautiful picture of Christ that's found in this offering as it amplifies the superlatives of Christ's love, His sacrifice, and his unique abilities. This part is about restitution. And it can't be understood except in its connection to Jesus. If you sin against someone and against God, it is not enough to say you are sorry. Someone is damaged. And so sorry does not make up for their loss. So the second part here that we learn in this trespass offering, that restitution must be made for the wrong. Now, we don't usually think about this part because in our doctrine of justification, we would never imagine that we must do this, that we must repent, believe, and then do something to make up for our sins. We're not justified because we do something good. We're not justified because we do anything for God. We're not justified because we do anything for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this, this sacrifice is proof that our justification can only be by Christ because there is something more that's required in the sacrifice. There is also restitution. God demands more from sinful man than to say he is sorry. But man can't do more. Even the fact that we're sorry and that we repent and we turn to Christ, that's not by our own initiative. So much less could we, could we do something to make up for our sins. And yet God demands not only satisfaction, He says there must be restitution. So that tells us all of this must fall on Christ to supply for us. Now let's break it down. Understanding justification in the New Testament, we don't expect that we would see restitution. So... 
first thing that would come to our minds, well, we must be talking about Old Testament law, that this is something that's been done away with. We don't really worry about this part any longer. But that's not true. It's still in effect. And I want to show you how it's in effect. Now, if you, if you have a teenager, or if you had one, then you've likely experienced this. The day comes when they have to have a driver's license. And that means they're going to get behind the wheel of your car. And inevitably, sometime, this will happen. This is not speculation. I'm not guessing about this. It will happen. A parked car or an inanimate object of some kind will jump out in front of them and they don't even realize it and they run into it. Damage is done. First thing they do is get on, now it's a cell phone, of course, everybody's got one. They get on the cell phone, they call you with trembling in their voice, tears in their eyes. They will say, Dad, I am so sorry, please forgive me. And you'll be upset with them. Of course you'll be upset with them, but you will forgive them and you won't disown them because you know nobody's going to take them off your hands anyway, so that doesn't do any good. So they're sorry, and you forgive them. But sorry doesn't fix the car, right? Sorry doesn't fix the car. All the feelings are all good again because they're so sorry, and you accept the apology. Feelings fix that. I mean, the sorry fixes that, but it cannot fix the dents that are in the car. Now, consider the difference then in the sin offering and the trespass offering. We don't see restitution in the sin offering, but we do see it in chapter 6 with the trespass offering. It adds this requirement, starting in verse number 4. Then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all about that which uh, he hath sworn falsely. He shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, with thy estimation for a trespass offering unto the priest. Now, in the sin offering, the sinful nature is the key. Actual transgressions aren't considered in that, so there isn't any damage to be corrected. The sacrifice atones, it's sufficient for the nature. And so the nature is taken care of. And the person dies, and that's sufficient for the nature itself. So God takes the life of a sinner, and a person who's dead in sin, sins no more. He dies that way, and now there's no more sin. Now in another fashion, we can say for those that know Christ, that he dies for them, and thereby uh, this person uh, in Christ continues to live with a new nature, and there are no more charges against him because of his old nature. However, where there is transgression, there we're talking about sin offering. Here, where we're talking about transgression, there's damage. Someone's harmed in this. The death of a sinner doesn't cover up the loss of the injured party. So the one here that offers must also make up the loss that the person suffered. Now, if you want a, another reason why we believe in eternal hell and not in annihilation, then you could look at the trespass offering. Physical death cannot satisfy the transgressions of life, and neither will spiritual death. And so hell is eternal because damage has been done to God, and that damage can never be repaired by anything that we do. 
We can't satisfy the worth of the damage that we've done against the infinite God. Only Christ can do that. And so if you don't have Christ to make that payment for your sin and to repair the damage done, then there's only one choice. You've got to suffer endlessly for that. Now, without the law of restitution, we're hopeless. God gets nothing from Christ's sacrifice for sin. He gives and he gives and he gives, but he gets nothing in return. Now, you need to pay very close attention here and stay with me on this because we're going to go into theology that's below the surface. First, God is the loser in man's transgression. His holiness is robbed. His righteousness of the kingdom is damaged. And that cannot be reclaimed be reclaimed in the death of the sinner. When we sin, we incur a debt to God. The penalty is death. That ends the indebtedness of the sin itself. Dead men don't owe any more debts, do they? I just explained that. When you die, the law has no more claim on you. If you die owing the bank money, they can't collect from you. That your indebtedness goes away. And you consider that when you place your faith in Christ, that you died in Christ and the sin debt is paid. You don't owe God for sin any longer. Now, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 7, Paul explains this using the analogy of the death of a spouse. Some believe that this part of Romans is for explaining that widows and widowers can remarry, but that point is incidental to his argument. The point is to show us how the law is no longer binding against someone who has died in Christ. So in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse number 1, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of letter. Now, the last part of this is the clincher for the trespass offering. What's the restitution part about? That's in verse 6. Now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we lost our indebtedness to the law when we died in Christ. And then what's next? After we become Christians, the next thing is that we serve. We serve in the newness of the Spirit according to a new law. So this is how it works, that death satisfied the law, but then God gets his restitution when our lives become his. Death satisfies the penalty, but that doesn't give God anything for the damage done. So our service to the Lord, is the restitution. He gets what man was created to do, to glorify God through service. And so God gets more in Christ 
than if all he does is to take our lives from us. He gets a new creature that is created in holiness, and we are enabled to serve and honor him, which a person could never do before. Now let me show you then how particular redemption, the doctrine that Christ died for the elect, just comes jumping out of this sacrifice. It must be that Christ died only for those who will be saved. Now listen very carefully. If he died for those who don't believe and they go to hell, then God receives no benefit from the death of Christ. Justice is served in death. That has to be done. But God gets nothing else. He only gets justice. So this means that God would trade the death of his son without getting anything in return. His son dies and God gets nothing. Because that sacrifice means nothing to those people. They're not saved by the death. Christ means nothing at all to them because nothing has been purchased by God for them. Christ's death doesn't mean anything to them. So what does God get for giving his precious son for them? Nothing. So the death of Christ is wasted on them. Now surely it's evident to us that a perfectly wise God would not sacrifice for nothing. So... What if God secures the salvation for everyone that Christ died? Well, not only does God get, not only does he get justice, but he also gets the restitution. He redeems man for a life for him, and so he gets service, he gets the magnification of his glory. And you can believe this, that God is a better investor than man. God always gets a return on his investment. And so this offering pictures God satisfied, God receiving more than he lost when man sinned against him. Who could believe that God, who created man, would find out in the end that he lost more than he gained because there are more people that die without him than die with him. The greater part of people don't believe. But then it gets even better than this, that man also receives more than he lost. In the sin of Adam... We lost paradise. We lost Eden. We lost communion with God. We lost life. But what do we regain in Christ? We get all of that back in greater degree. We get a new paradise that's infinitely better than Eden. We get more in Christ than being just back on square one with God as Adam was. Now, in Christ, we have become heirs to the inheritance and the riches of Christ. In Edom, there are trees, there's grass, there's shrubs and vegetables, there's a garden that needs to be tended. But in heaven, there's gold and diamonds and precious stones and pearls and a city that's shining like a prism of light. There is no one who loses in Christ's death. God does not lose in Christ's death. We don't lose in Christ's death. And neither does Christ lose in his death. So Christ's death covers the loss that's been made to God, the loss that because of man, and the loss that he suffers himself by giving his life. He gets a people. He gets justice and he gets restitution. Now this is just an astounding theological principle. Grace abounds to the sinner. This is what the Word of God says. Romans 5, 18 to 20. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the by the righteousness of one, the free gift, came upon all men under the justification of life. Obviously, the all there has to be the all who believe in Christ. They're the only ones that receive justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It is remarkable that there are people who use these verses to prove universal atonement when the idea, according to Paul and what we've just seen in the Old Testament, is alarmingly preposterous. It cannot happen. So if Christ does not receive all that he died for, both he and the Father are monumental losers. Now, do you want to hear Jesus explain this principle in his interpretation of the law? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the law of Christ's kingdom. What does he have to say about all of these things that we've just talked about? Uh, satisfying God, satisfying the law, and then making restitution. Well, we do find it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 38. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. That is the satisfaction of justice. Even exchange here, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But what about the pain and suffering of the person's loss? Did you pay for that? You give him an eye, you give him a tooth or whatever. Did you pay for the pain and the suffering of it? Well, the answer is no. But even our own courts demand that, don't they? Not only do you have to make the rest, make the, uh, make up for the loss that's been suffered, but you also must pay restitution for the pain and suffering. Something is added on top. Now, do you see how Jesus explains it in verse number 40? He says, if you get sued, and here he's talking about being sued rightly. You did a wrong, you got sued, judgment's been entered against you, you pay for the loss. That's the coat. You pay for his loss, that's the coat. And the addition for the aggravation is the cloak. Not only do you give him his coat, but you give him your cloak. Now let's go back to Leviticus 5 to see more. In the 15th verse, it says to add the fifth part of the shekel of the sanctuary. And it says it's by the priest's estimation. In other words, there's a standard that is established. The standard is the one that God sets. And you're not going to do less than the standard that God sets and have satisfaction, not the satisfaction of God. Now, we don't have time to read all this, but you can look in places like Exodus 30:13 and verse number 24 as well, and chapter 38, verses 24 and 25, and in Leviticus 27, verse 3, there's mentioned the shekel of the sanctuary. That is an amount that has been set by God. Now, interestingly, also in Leviticus 5.15, that passage teaches there are degrees of sin. That the priest is to estimate the value of the sin according to its harm. But then we find in other places there is a set amount for stealing, it's 20% added to the amount stolen. Now, that's also a degree, isn't it? Well, it is. 20% of a small amount stolen is less than 20% of a great amount stolen. So there's a degree there. Now, let's catch the meaning of this. If you return a stolen item, then a person only gets back to even. But what about the time and the effort of his loss? 20% on top 
satisfies the principle that Christ's sacrifice is actually greater than any loss that's incurred. He's not just paying for sin. He's providing something much, much more than just the sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice is more valuable than the loss that is incurred. Then still, there's another truth demonstrated. When sin happens, there is a debt charged. And when a person restores for a trespass offering, that restoration is not a gift. The debt is owed. And you don't gift someone when you pay back a debt. But what about the 20% that's added on top? Is that a gift that you give the person? No. The principle taught is that a person deserves that 20% too. That that actually is his property. You owe that as well. Not just what you took, but also the restitution on top. Now likewise, when God saves you, when you serve him, your service to God is not a gift. You owe God service too. Listen to Jesus explain in Luke 17. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did those things which were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. Is your service to God a gift? No. Your service is owed to God. Nobody can gift God anything. Did you know that? You can't gift God because everything you have is already His. It belongs to Him. So nobody can outgive God because God is the source of all that you have. The only thing that we give back to God comes out of the storehouse of things that He gave us. So the main part of this discussion is that nobody loses with God. All transactions between God and His people are gain. And the fifth part added to shows that the sacrifice of Christ, in that sacrifice, there must be gain for God, and there must be gain for Christ, and there must be gain for man. We cannot conceive that the omniscient God would devise a plan that deprives him rather than enriches him. Now, one last thought, and we'll close. Where did this idea of 20% on top of restitution, where is that first discovered in the Scriptures? Well, the first application of it is in Genesis 47, It flows out of Genesis 41 before Joseph was made governor in Egypt. Now, you remember the story that he proposed to Pharaoh that he should store up grain for seven years in advance of a famine. A 20% tax on grain was imposed on each farmer to be stored up for the famine. Then in chapter 47, the famine came and Joseph began to distribute the stored grain. The people were charged for the grain when they went to get it, and soon all of their money had ran out. And so Pharaoh had all the money. Next, the people brought their cattle in exchange for grain, and soon they had no more livestock because Pharaoh had all of that too. Then they brought the deeds to their land and traded that for grain, and then eventually Pharaoh had all of the land. Now what we find here is a picture developing showing God owns it all, that there isn't 
anything left to give. And so we are, we're destitute. We don't have anything to give God. And so with everything gone, when everything is gone, did Joseph say, tough, now you've got to starve? No, he didn't do that. Joseph continued to give them grain with a promise that in the future harvest they would pay, they would give, rather, Pharaoh 20% of their grain and keep 80% for themselves. That 80%, God, or Joseph said, this belongs to you. The 20% goes to Pharaoh. Now, what they gave to Pharaoh, that 20%, is that a gift to Pharaoh? Well, no. They, they owe him for that. And so everybody walks away from this transaction happy. Pharaoh gets his 20%, and the people get their 80% in order to live their lives. So nobody's left, left to fend for themselves. Nobody's left here with nothing. Everybody wins. So we can mark this down in our hearts that we are not going to lose when we do business with God. In Leviticus 27, the people added to the fifth part when they hadn't paid their tithes. But did they lose? Are, are they losers if they have to do that? No, because God granted them the land and the harvest. And he said, this land will be always yours. This is your possession forever. And do you understand that God does this for you too? It's the law of the trespass offering. This is not just an Old Testament ceremony. This is taking place in God's plan of redemption for His people. That we're destitute, we have nothing, but we come to God and He gives us more than we could ever gain anywhere else. God does not lose. Christ does not lose. We do not lose in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what we learn was when we get into Christ... That is far more than we could ever imagine. We don't get even, we get grace abounding to sinful men. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you again for Jesus Christ and the grace that is bestowed upon us through the sacrifice of your Son. Lord, help us to see that we're nothing without you. Your people already realize that. We hope that they do. We have nothing that doesn't come from you. And because of this, we owe you our service, unreserved service. And when we serve you, we haven't done a great thing. We've done that which was our duty to do. This is expected of us. We've been given salvation in Jesus Christ, and in turn, our lives belong to you. And our lives belong to you to be used as you see fit. So help us, Lord, not to try to fulfill our purposes for life, but to fulfill yours as we trust Jesus Christ for it. Thank you for these things, Lord. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.